Psalm 39. Uh, Throughout literature, um, authors will often pick a name that has a significance to the character of the character. Does that make sense? So, So they're very intentional about the names that they pick when writing a story Because oftentimes, when you study really great literature, there's hints about the character in the name that they choose. Now, there's there's probably no greater, uh, more straightforward for those of you like me who are not uh, literary geniuses to pick up on this than in the book Pilgrim's Progress. Okay? Let me me read you some of the characters from Pilgrim's Progress, and I'll kind of describe a little bit about them. The main character's name is Christian. He's a husband and a father stricken by a spiritual crisis. Christian is told by a messenger to leave his doomed city and begin a journey of progress towards spiritual achievement. Then he runs into a guy named Evangelist, a messenger carrying the gospel or word of Christ to Christian. Evangelist spurs Christian on his journey to the celestial city. There's another character named Worldly Wise Man, a reasonable and practical man whom Christian encounters early in his journey. A worldly wise man tries unsuccessfully to urge Christian to give up his religious foolishness and to live a contented secular life. There's Formalist, a traveler traveler whom Christian meets along the way, the wall of salvation, with his companion Hypocrisy. Formalist sneaks over the wall instead of following the straight and narrow as Christian did. Talkative, fellow pilgrim who travels alongside Christian and faithful for a while, talkative is spurned by Christian for valuing spiritual words over religious deeds. Mr. Buy-ins, a user of religion for personal ends and social profit. Mr. Byans accompanies Christian briefly after Christian escapes from vanity. There's another character named Great Despair, master of the Doubting Castle. Great Despair imprisons Hopeful and Christian for trespassing on his domain and is later killed by Greatheart and Christiana's son. So in this story, you read these characters, and, and you pretty much know right away when you read the character's name, you know a lot about them. But before you even get to the description of them, you know something about them because of their name. Now, David's going to do the exact same thing in Psalm 39. Problem is, we don't read Hebrew. We read in English. And so it's very easy to read through this psalm and miss some important wordplay that David is going to be doing in this psalm to kind of point us to some, some double meanings with the way he's using certain words in this psalm. And I want to break this psalm down this morning in four sections. I want to look at the problem with remaining silent, verses 1 through 3. I want to look at how to measure our days, verses 4 through 6. The source of our hope in verses 7 through 11. And this world is not our home. In 12 through 13. So we're going to see the problem with remaining silent, how to measure our days, the source of our hope, and this world is not our home. So we're going to put this up on the screen, just a a few verses, uh, 
for us to read this morning as a church? Ooh, maybe we're not. Oh, y'all can read it, okay. All right, well, I'm going to turn around this way. All right, if you could, read along with me. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Amen. So the first section here, verses 1 through 3, we're going to be looking at the problem of remaining silent. David starts out this verse uh, in verse 1 saying, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. David gives us two reasons why he felt the need to guard his ways and to guard his words. And those two reasons were he did not want to sin with his speech. He, He didn't want to say something in the midst of whatever is happening. Again, this is one of those psalms where we don't know exactly what's happening to him. We don't know exactly what the situation is that he's going through. But what we do know is that in that situation, he's not happy. He, he's, he's not liking how things are going, right? This is like us late 2020, right? We didn't like it. And we're sitting there in the midst of that, and, and David is saying, you know, I've got to guard my mouth. I've got to be careful that I don't say something that I shouldn't. I don't, I don't sin with my mouth. But also, I have to be careful because the wicked are around me. And, and again, I, I don't want to damage the testimony of my God to the wicked, the people that are around me, and give them further cause to attack me. To, to jump on me and say, aha, see, I told you. Your, your, your God's not going to save you. Silence is often wise and appropriate. There, there are times, the Bible tells us, to be silent. 
If you know me very well, you know one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, sin is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. A kind pastor pulled me aside in a meeting one day and encouraged me to memorize that verse when I was young. It was very gracious of him, wasn't it? Yeah. But it, but it taught me something very important. If, if, you, if you're quiet, people will tell you everything you want to know. And, and, and really, I, I kind of thank him for that because that's probably why I'm as good at counseling as I am. It's because I learned to listen and not talk. Proverbs 17, 28 is another great one. It's a good one to keep committed to your memory. If you're working on memorizing scripture, I would encourage you to memorize this one. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he opens his when he opens, when he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs eleven twelve and seventeen twenty seven are other great examples of why there are times in which the wisest course of action is to be silent. But here, David is not being wise by keeping silent. Even though his motives are well-intentioned, even though he's, he's hoping for something good, right? This is, he doesn't have bad reasons for keeping quiet. He, he doesn't want to sin. He doesn't want to give the wicked any justification or cause. But have you ever noticed someone who is constantly praising God? Right? And then all of a sudden, they just get silent. That sends a message too, doesn't it? Pretty loud and clear. So, sometimes louder than words. When, when everybody sees you and you're like, oh, praise God, God's doing so good and things are wonderful. And, and man, I just, I'm so happy that, that God has done this and this and this. And then the next time they see you, you're like, mm. It's like, oh, something's wrong. Right? Even though they're not saying anything negative, people still notice the lack of good speech. And this causes David's heart to burn within himself. But to the surprise of the, the audience, to, to, to our surprise, rather than blurting out and speaking to the wicked around him, where does he turn? David speaks not to the wicked, but in prayer to God. David is asking in this psalm for wisdom. He, he wants wisdom to understand the brevity of this life. And that leads us to the second part of this psalm this morning. How to measure our days. We, we sing a song, we sang it last week, called Wisdom and Grace. And I love that song because it, it, it says in that song, Teach me to number my days. Help me to understand how short this life is. There's three things David wants to know in verse 4, and they're all kind of related to one another in this section. Taking them in order, David asked God to, to cause him to know his end so that he will know, second, how to measure his days. If he knows the end point of his life, he'll be able to know the distance between his present and the end. And thus, it, it will become apparent to him how fleeting, how temporary, how transient 
his existence really is. The, the prayerful contemplation of these realities in verse 4 prompts David to, to reflect then in verse 5. That the length can be measured in handbreadths. That, that before the Lord, his span, that the span of his life is as nothing. Some commentators see the final line of verse 5 to carry over the idea of, of standing before Yahweh, with David invoking both the way Adam brought sin and death into the world and the brief life of Abel through the words. This is, this is where that wordplay comes in in verse 5. Because it could also be translated, surely every Abel, every Adam, stands before God. Selah. English translations universally understand Adam as a reference to man, right? It, 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 it's a, another way of saying human or humanity, mortal man. And Abel as mere breath, just a, a moment of a vapor. The, the consonants and the pointings of the names Adam and Abel are the same as these nouns for man and vapor. But the use of the names ties the concepts to the Psalms as a foundational element here. David is bringing about, uh, he wants to bring in the idea of, of these two lives into this Psalm. And our English translations, they capture the, the aspect of the meanings of the lines. But, but the use of these terms, it, it, it adds a layer of understanding of what David is trying to communicate in this poetry, right? When, when you read poetry, there, there are layers of understanding. You can read through it and get one thing, and then as you read through it ten times, you begin to see another pattern emerging. Not conflicting, not contrary, but just depth. There, there's, a, there's a layering that happens. And, and that's what happens here by David using these words. Life is short because Adam sinned and introduced death into the world. That, that's why life is brief. That's why it is but a few handbreadths, right? Because of what Adam did when he sinned. Resulting in things like what happened to Abel. Right? Abel, Abel is, is this young man who was murdered long before he should have died, right? He, he had a very, very short, brief, brief, brief life. And so David is layering in meaning into this psalm by helping us tie in the names Adam and Abel into the story and helping us understand just how brief our life is. The Selah at the end of 39.5, it it, it seems to invite reflection on the depths of these tragic realities. In other words, David wants you to pause there, not speed read through the psalm, but, but slow down and think about what Adam cost. The eternal life with God cut short because of his sin. And then countless lives cut shorter like Abel's. 
we should not miss the relationship here between David's agitated silence in verses 1 through 3 and the perspective on the fleeting vanity of life he experiences in prayer here in 4 through 6. When our blood begins to boil under the provocation of this wicked world that we live in, by slowing down and reflecting on the brevity of our short lives, that that can have a sobering effect on us. Right? That, that anger and that agitation can begin to calm down. Because we begin to have perspective. We, we begin to understand how to number our days. David's focus on the end of his life and the short distance to it seems to, to prompt him to contemplate the nature of his hopes, the, the source and, and the sources of his miseries in 7 through 11. But before I, I jump over to the next section and the, the source of hope, I just want to stop here for a second and, and give you just a little bit of application. We should all ask God to remind us the length of our days. It, it's so easy for us, especially the younger you are this morning. Some of you are so young, you're not even paying attention right now. Because you think you got plenty of time. You think you got nothing but time. You, you think the world is moving so slow. You're wondering, why isn't this sermon over yet? We, we tend to forget that we are not going to live forever. Meditating on the length of our days should not make you morbid. Instead, it should inspire you to prioritize life accordingly. Think of it like this. Say you are a child and your parents live, you know, five states away. And because of that, you, you only get to go and visit them once a year. Now, you, you might take those meetings for granted, right? You, you might think you have this unlimited time to go see them, so you know what, I'm, I'm going to skip this year. But now, what if I come along and told you you're going to die in 10 years? Well, that means you have 10 visits left. Do you think you're going to prioritize your time and your visits differently? Do you think maybe you might even find a way to get an extra visit in? And that when you are there, you don't just take for granted that you're hanging out with your family, but you spend quality time with them because you know, I've only got 10 more of these. And as the year goes by, I've only got nine more of these. And as the next year goes by, I've only got eight more of these. Right? Right? See, understanding and reminding yourself of the length of your days, it doesn't make you morbid. It prioritizes how you spend the time you have left. None of you have unlimited time this morning. 
I don't know if you realize that or not. But you have a a short period of time. Husbands, you have a short period of time with your wife. Don't spend it fighting with them. Wives, you have a short period of time with your husbands. Don't spend it trying to control them. A little bit of laughter there. You only have so much time. I think think that's why in the New Testament when you read, don't let the sun go down on your anger because you don't know if that's the last time the sun's going to go down. Teach me to number my days. Help me to understand the length of my existence. Once we do that, we, we begin to value the time you have more, not less. And I would argue that asking God to show you the fleeting nature of life would make you live a more meaningful life. I thought about this as I was preparing. How many times I heard after we were allowed to come back to corporate worship in a somewhat normal way, so many people come up, oh, I miss this. I miss this. But you know what I also heard? Man, I took it for granted for so long. There'll be another Sunday. I'll go to the river today. There'll be another Sunday. I'm just going to sleep in this morning until there wasn't any more Sundays. There wasn't the corporate gathering anymore. See, I think God might have been teaching us to number our days. To help us reprioritize our lives. Not, listen, and don't hear this as some kind of guilt trip. God doesn't want you here because you feel guilty. He wants you here because you understand and value your relationship with Him. And when you do that, you want to come together with your family and celebrate. It should be driven by a desire of joy. Not shame or guilt. But joy. The joy that comes from understanding, I'm not going to live forever. So I've got to order my life. I've got to reprioritize the things in my life. Do you see the wisdom in David asking God to show him the length of his days? It puts all of his current problems in context. Which then leads to hope in verses 8 through 12. David continues in prayer in verse 7, considering his own hopes as a question posed to the Lord. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? His answer asserts that his hope is in the Lord. If we ask what specifically he hopes for as he waits... That the answer comes in a plea in verse 8 for the Lord to deliver him from all of his transgressions and the reproach of Nabal, or your English translations say the fool. The plea to be delivered from his transgressions in verse 8 seems to arise from David contemplating his own death, driving him to the ultimate conclusion that he will die. Why? Because he's a sinner. 
More than the trouble of the wicked, he mentioned in verse 1, David knows that sin is what will ultimately kill him. But David also asked not to be put to the reproach of Nabal or the fool. Now, for those of you who don't know, and if you want a little fun side story, side adventure this week, go read 1 Samuel chapter 25, and you'll learn about Nabal. Nabal was the man whose name communicated the foolishness of his character. So if you're ever writing a story, and in that story you have a foolish man, I would encourage you to name him Nabal. Because that not only was the man's name in 1 Samuel chapter 25, it was also his character. Listen to, listen to what his wife says about him. Please do not, do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. He's a fool. He's a fool. Here again we find a name that has a meaning. Again, she's just showing us the richness of this poetry that David is writing. Guys, these aren't simple things. We talked about that chiastic structure a couple of weeks ago. You know, we, we tend to read through these, and we don't realize there's so much in these psalms. That David is, is, is a master poet. And, and David is drawing out here another layer with this bringing up of the word Nabal being spelled the same as the word fool. David's statement is worded such that it can communicate at least two ideas. He neither wants to be the fool to be a fool, and thus bear the reproach due a fool. Second, he does not want to be the object of scorn. Fools direct at those over whom they rejoice. Either way, David asks the Lord not to put him in the reproach of Nabal or the fool. As with the names Adam and Abel, the name Nabal links the words of Psalm 39 to other biblical narratives that that again, for, for a, a Hebrew listening to this would be like, oh, I, I recognize this. This is setting off hyperlinks all throughout the Old Testament for them and showing them a depth and a level that sometimes I'm afraid we just miss reading through in our English Bibles. It ties the Psalm's message back to those narratives and it, it, it advances it. It helps us to understand it. Nabal is precisely the kind of man David doesn't want to be. Nor does he want a man like Nabal to reproach him. Sin always puts us in danger of being the fool. We do not want to be the fool's bearing reproach, nor do we want fools reproaching us. And the only way to avoid that reproach is to have the Lord deliver us from our sins. David is, is, is silent or, or mute in recognition of the fact of what he says in verse 9, that God did it. Because he knows that is the only way, but it, it's only because of God that David can stand. It's not because of his good deeds. It's not because of what he's done. It's not because of his wisdom. It's, not it's, it's only because of God. 
Period. End of sentence. There is nothing else. And the only proper response is silence for the man who fears the Lord when he comes to that realization. David's recognition of his sin has, has wrought him in silence. Silence he could not work in himself in verses 1 through 3. Remember, he tried to be silent, but, but his heart burned within him when he tried to do it. But when he focused on the Lord, when he focused on where his hope came from, when he focused on the fact that God alone did it, oh, now you can be silent. David's prayerful reflection here of his short life and impending death, because he's a sinner, has brought him to a place where he offers no excuses, no explanations, and no arguments. He is silent. Now, when you find yourself going to God and you're confessing and repenting of your sin, are you giving God excuses and reasons and arguments for why you sinned? Lord, I got really angry, but he, but she, they should know better. Or do you go to God silent, recognizing that you can't save yourself? There, there's, there's nothing to defend because he did it. You don't have to do anything but confess and repent. You don't have to explain it to God. You don't have to have a good argument because he did it. Not you, but he did it. David then in verse 10 Ask the Lord to remove the, the devastating blow of his hand. In verse 10, the, the plague and the stroke of God's discipline for David's sin has become evident in verse 11. David describes the effect of God's discipline against him and all who are tainted with iniquity in verse 11. Rather than enjoy the, the lasting joy of holy obedience, that accompanies walking with God in his ways. God will cause what they desire to melt like a moth. And this is another one of those just beautiful illustrations that just brings out this visual nature, right? This, this image depicts a moth, and I don't know if you have ever done this before, but you know when you touch their wings, if you hold on to them for very long, the, the wings disintegrate. They literally, just right in your hands, are just, they're just gone. They're just unable to withstand any contact for any length of time. They're, they're beautiful. They're amazing. They give them flight. But if you just, if you just touch them, they, they melt like wax. And David is saying, so are the things that make for sinful pleasure. All of those things that he pursued after, all of those things that he thought he desired, all of those things that he thought his heart wanted, they... They, they melted like that moth's wings. And they ended up in a shameful ditch of addiction. I got to have more. Maybe if I just have more, right? Maybe if I just, if, if, what, what if I switch and I get this? And, and all of those desires begin to melt away 
And all that's left is, is, is this ditch of addiction that so many people find themselves in. And, and there's, there's a million ways to fall into that ditch. You can fall into it with alcohol. You can fall into it with drugs. You can fall into it with your phone. You can fall into it with social media. And you can't look away. I might miss something. Some of you fall into that ditch of addiction with news. Doing what some authors have referred as doom scrolling. I haven't heard a more accurate term for that. What's, what's the latest bad news? What's, what's the worst that's going to happen? I need to get a bunker. I need to move out into the woods. Oh my gosh. Right? That, th- these ditches of addiction are all around. So, some are socially unacceptable, but some are very socially acceptable. So, some of you fall into that ditch of addiction of work and, and power and money and, and, and trying to gather as much as you can. But David says that when God touches it, it melts like the, like the, the wing of a moth or like wax. It just disintegrates and it's just gone. And in the end, no happiness remains. Instead, it is just soul-sapping sin. And having captured this poetic image of the melting moth, David repeats statements made in verses 5 and at the end of verses 11. Surely Abel, every Adam, Selah. All men will experience life as a breath or a vapor like Abel. Because all men descend from Adam. What can David do in response to such realities? But to cry out to the Lord as he does in verses 12 through 13. Because the world is not our home. David asks the Lord to hear his prayer in verse 12, and then he he makes the request he wants heard in verse 13. The the request to be heard is stated in three different times in three different ways. The repetition communicates urgent desperation on the part of David. David calls on God to hear his prayer, one. Two, to give ear to his cry for help. And three, not to be silent in response to his weeping. David's emotional pleas in verse 12 seem to be prompted by the, the, the plague or the blow or the reproofs. God's strange ministry of discipline. You do understand that, right, this morning? This is a strange ministry for God. This is not God's natural ministry. God's natural ministry is mercy. God's strange ministry is disciplining sinners. You say, why do you say that, Dale? Well, because if there had been no sin in that garden, this ministry would have never existed. And there's coming a point in time in the future in which this ministry will no longer exist. 
It's a strange ministry. I know some of you have come to church and you think this is God's only ministry. That, that he only wants to punish and torment people. But understand this morning, that, that's a strange ministry, not the normal ministry. The normal ministry of God is mercy and grace, as it was in the beginning, as it will be in the future. But as we live in this time, it's, it's a strange ministry of our Lord. But one he does not because he wants to punish and torment, but because like a father disciplines a child and wants them to live, he wants them to succeed, he wants them to walk the proper path, he participates in this because he loves us. Not, not because he wants to torment and punish you, but because of his normal ministry of mercy and grace. And, and that's what he wants to extend to you every day. But yet, because of our sin, this ministry exists. And it will exist until the moment all things are made right. Every tear is wiped away. And this ministry will cease to be. God, I look forward to that day. David's emotionally asking God because of this, this discipline, this strange discipline that he is feeling. That discipline caused the, the insubstantial nature of what he desired to just melt away like a moth. The tears David references when he describes himself weeping then likely arose from the sorrow that he would sin against God. Because what he desired in life turned out to be worthless. David feels foolish. He, he feels the shame and the folly of his sin and chasing after things that were less than. And he wants to be delivered from both his sin and his, his consequences of his sin, such as the shame he experiences in verse 8. The third request is to be heard in verse 12, for the Lord not to be silent. It is a request for him to act. Asking, he, he, he's asked the Lord to hear. David continues in verse 12 with a reason the Lord should do so. David explains it's because he is a sojourner with the Lord. A, a pilgrim. Like his forefathers. David is not like those who place their hope in this life and in this earth. He describes himself as a sojourning pilgrim, David shows that he does not consider this world his home. He considers himself to be on the way to a better land, that land I just talked about where this ministry is no more, this strange ministry of discipline is no more. The one that has been promised, where the Lord will reign. This amounts to an appeal to the Lord on the basis of the fact that David belongs to God. He, he's a citizen of God's kingdom. David is a participant, a beneficiary of God's covenant. Again, a covenant that God did. David's prayer reveals 
ultimately what he believes. If he didn't believe this about the Lord, he would not, the Lord, the Lord couldn't answer these requests. He, he wouldn't make them. But David believes that sin will earn him death. But he believes that God can deliver him from the power of his sin. And that God can deliver him from the consequences of his sin. David also believes that life is short. But that this short life is just a pilgrimage to a place that will have life that will last forevermore. Verse 13 shows that David believes that God himself is visiting justice against him because of his sin. Again, David had spoken of the way the Lord had plagued him and brought down his hand to, to strike him in verse 10. And it's in that context that we must understand David's request. And, and this is where, again, it, it's helpful to understand that this is a strange ministry of God. David appeals to the Lord to turn your gaze from me. As the New, New American Standard renders that. This, of course, entails the Lord finding some other means of doing justice against transgression. Right? God is a just God. There, there has to be some other place for the Lord to look to find satisfaction for these, this sin. Under the Old Covenant, the sacrificial system provided that means. But I, I believe here he's pointing forward to a better one. One you can read about in Romans 3, 24 through 26. If the Lord will remove this wrathful look from David, then David will be able to enjoy life before this brief life ends. I just want to close by, by showing you a couple of ways, four ways this morning that David points us to Jesus in Psalm 39. In verses 1 through 3, David pledges to neither sin, which we all know he fails at. Right? David was a man. Go read about his life. nor to speak things in the hearing of the wicked. See, I believe these two things point to Jesus. Unlike David, Jesus succeeded in guarding his ways against every sin. He lived the perfect life that David couldn't live. And he was silent as a sheep before his shearers. Second, David reflects on the brief walk of the sons of Adam who bear the image take before the Lord in verses 4 through 6. I would argue that Jesus is the ultimate image bearer. Lived a brief, brief life. At least over half of you live longer than he did. 
He had a very short public ministry and died in his 30s. Third, David suffered the blows, the, the, the plague and the shame of the sins that he committed, that he, he rightly deserved discipline for. Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for the sins of his people. Not for his own sin, but for our sin. And finally, David cried out to the Lord, asking him to turn his angry gaze away. The father turned his back on Jesus altogether, prompting Jesus' God-forsaken cry. Jesus lived that life perfectly. Jesus made that sacrifice perfectly so that you and I may have life this morning. Oh, may the Lord teach us to number our days so that we might prioritize our life and, and spend it on what matters. Focusing our hearts and our energy into glorifying Him. Loving Him with all that we have. And loving our neighbor with all that we have. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for pointing us this morning to him. Thank you for reminding us this morning to number our days. Not, not so that we might be depressed as we leave here and, and morbid as we leave here, Lord, but, but so that we will live a life of meaning, a life of value, Lord, Lord that, that, that the suffering of this world would be put into perspective so that we might count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Because we know, Lord, that you work all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes.